Let's now hear the word of God spoken from uh, Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. Aleph. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, he, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Again, I remind you that this is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but, our, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's again pray. <clears throat> As we come now to your word, O oh Father, we ask that you would bless it. We ask that, that you would bless to our hearts the proclamation of your word and make it be fruitful and make it multiply so that we may be renewed in the whole image of the Son of Man who lived for us, who died for us. Ultimately, we desire all glory to go to the triune God For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a pretty long time since I uh, exposited Psalm 119. I think it was March 20th that I uh, preached from Psalm 119 to you. So, I think we need a refresher course. This is an introduction to Psalm 119. So it is most important that we get this right before we move ahead to to Psalm, excuse me, because these themes are run throughout Psalm 119. So we better uh, make sure that we get all these things right. You will remember the way that we began. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. I said then, and I said, and I say now that this is impossible after the fall. However, the ultimate blessed one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, he imputes to us that righteousness, or as the text says, the blamelessness, and thus begins a lifelong journey of sanctification by which we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Also, I said that blessed are the ones, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Those who truly seek the Lord with their whole hearts are the happy ones. But again, we said that this is impossible for us since the fall of man. 
we cannot seek him with our whole hearts. As much as we try, we cannot attain it. Our hearts are mangled and disfigured with sin. And we don't even know this of our hearts except the testimony of the scripture reveals this. However, this requirement points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He only is the blameless blameless one. He only seeks the Lord with their whole heart. We recall that the blessed one does no wrong but walks in his ways. Once again, we cannot possibly do no wrong and at all times walk in his ways. But again, this points to Jesus Christ. He only does no wrong and walks in his father's ways. The only happy one or blessed one is in union and communion with this blameless one, Jesus Christ. If properly understood, this is a gospel-centric psalm. We also said in, uh, in Psalm 119.4, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Here we have a new subject, the Lord. In the former three verses, the subject was the Blessed One, giving wisdom of God to, to be universally happy. But now, and forevermore in Psalm 119, the Lord is the subject. With this sentence, the author assumes that you are regenerate. You can't keep the precepts of the law if you are not. We distinguished between three types of law, the legal, the Christological, and the evangelical. The the legal use points us to our sin. Having seen our sin and misery, we hold up our hands and say with Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in the Christological use of the law, we say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This use says that if the sinner runs for unto Christ for salvation, he will obtain it. The evangelical use promotes the moral law as a rule of life. As in Romans 3.31 After saying that justification is by grace through faith alone, Paul says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold it in its proper place. Having come for deliverance to Christ, he realizes that one is not free from the law entirely. And the believer does not want to be free because it reveals God's most holy character. Furthermore, the blessings of the new covenant is that God himself will place the law in our hearts so that we can walk in them. But but only in the power of Christ who shed his blood and announced This blood is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. 
The Christian knows that he has an obligation to strive to keep the law, but it is as a free man. You have been set free from keeping the law as a covenant of works, but you are free to keep the law according to the covenant of grace. Not because you are saved by it. You only are saved by Christ alone. However, we express our gratitude for redemption, for this redemption in Christ Jesus. What are the divisions of the Heidelberg Catechism? One, the misery of man. Two, the redemption of man. And third, the gratitude for such a redemption. The third section explains the evangelical use of the law. If you are regenerate, you have been redeemed from the condemning power of the law, but you have, excuse me, but you make it your obligation by the Spirit's power to obey the moral law as a righteous rule. So, having been reminded of these things, we will be able to move on to verses 7 and 8. All these things are assumed when you come to these two verses. If you have been saved by the blameless one, if you are regenerate, and if you long to keep God's commandments diligently, then verse 7 records, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This leads to the doctrine of this passage. God's grace compels you to make two vows that you will praise the Lord all of your life and that you will obey his statutes. Once again, God's grace compels you to make two vows that you will praise the Lord all your life and that you will obey his statutes. I hope to make this clear in this sermon. In the exposition, the author makes two vows to the Lord. There are several vows in Psalm 119, and primarily they come at the end of uh, the various eight verses, such as verse 15 and 16, 30 to 32, and 44 through 48, etc. This one instance, this is one instance of that. The author vows, I will praise you, and then uh, vow two, I will keep your statutes. And we will look at these in time, but first we should explain vows. What are vows? They are solemn promises, like our membership vows. They are solemn promises to the church uttered before the congregation and far more consequential before God. We should remember that. Also, there are vows or solemn promises that, we, that, that you and I make to our wives or our husbands. To love them as long as you both shall live. However, it is one thing to keep membership vows or marriage vows as solemn promises. 
But he vows, he makes solemn promises to the living God. He makes solemn vows to the living God. So we should look at this. Vow one, I will praise you. I will praise you. Assuming the things that we said before, that Christ heals us from our sin and misery, and that we should keep the rules and laws of God in an evangelical sense, this leads to the impetus to praise the Lord. To praise God or the Lord in this form only occurs one time in all of Psalm 119. And synonyms to praise in other forms occur only two times. And bless occurs just one time. So there are four prescriptions to praise the Lord or bless the Lord. That, that is really shocking to me. In, in um, these, excuse me, 176 verses only reveal that we should praise him four times. That is quite shocking to me. So we should take this vow seriously and take these four verses in conjunction. And the first point under this heading is I will praise you in the past, in the present, and in the future. Verse 62 says, At midnight I rise to praise you. This gives the impression that in the past, at midnight, he praises the Lord. Verse 164. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. This gives the impression that he uh, presently praises the Lord. And verse 8. I will praise you. This is in the future tense that the author commits to praising the Lord in every aspect of life, past, present, and future. The author vows to praise the Lord. Further, the author prays every time in the day. He commits to praising him on every occasion during the day. He praises the Lord at midnight and seven times throughout the day. As you well know, the, the, number, of, the number seven in the Hebrew scriptures is the number of perfection because it is the number of the days of creation. Therefore, he rises to praise God every hour of the day and he prays him, praises him at midnight. All hours of the day. Morning and evening. This is called a merism. And Eric just talked about it in Sunday school the other day. A merism takes both ends of the spectrum to indicate that he will praise the Lord. Morning and evening, day and night, he makes solemn vows and promises to praise the Lord. Furthermore, he praises the Lord with an upright heart. This is not just lip service praise. 
It is said with an upright heart. Other translations of this can be a right heart or a straight heart. In other words, he worships the Lord with all his heart, which he described as right or straight. David was a grand example of walking with an upright heart. And he was the golden standard of this, that uh, golden standard of this, that all the kings were judged in Scripture. You can read of the monarchies that followed on the train of David, and this comparison, walking with an upright heart, is recounted for, excuse me, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, and Josiah were rendered good kings because they walked in the law with an upright heart. But the wicked kings contrasted King David. They allowed the high places to remain, defiled the temple, or as Messiah did, or Manasseh did in 2 Kings 21.6, he even burnt his son, presumably to Molech. David was the prime example by which other kings were just as walking with an upright heart. However, there is a caveat here. When I learn your righteous rules. We need to discuss this in two points. First, the caveat, when I learn, and then the Lord's righteous rules. So the first point, when I learn. As Matthew Henry said, that this phrase is intimating that he could not learn unless God taught him. If God does not graciously reveal these righteous rules to us, we will not be taught. That is the first point. But further, this communicates that the author does not know all the rules, and he defiles them unknowingly every day. This is why the Lord extends to people the laws for guilt offerings, spoken about in Leviticus 5 for unintentional sins. Leviticus 5.14 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. Or verse 17, If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity, and he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish. Leviticus 6 goes on to say, if you are made aware that you have committed a sin against the neighbor, against our neighbors, by thievery or robbery or by swearing falsely, these things... uh, These are the things that you might be ignorant of. But once the sinner is made aware of the sin, he has the ability to offer a ram of the flock and shall make atonement for him once he pays the restitution price. The second thing that I wish for you to talk about, uh, that I wish for us to talk about, is the Lord's righteous rules. The author confesses 
that the Lord is righteous in all his rules. Who can deny this? Just look at a summary of the moral law for a moment. The first table of the law, the first commandment, is that there is no God but one. You shall have no other gods before me. Who can deny that there is only one God? There can only be one God. Even pagans who maintain multiple gods only only ultimately believe in the supreme being, such as Zeus. As Aristotle said, there is only one ultimate being, a first cause or a prime mover. Even pagans accept this. Who can deny that these commandments are not right? They are beautifully righteous. The third commandment is uh, that we not take the let not take the Lord's name in vain. We ought to take God's name very seriously. Who can deny that this is righteous? Or take the sixth commandment: Thou shalt not murder. Or the seventh. Thou shalt not commit adultery, or the eighth, thou shalt not steal. Who can deny that these are righteous rules? The summary of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, I have probably never heard it said that these are unrighteous. I was once talking to an atheist who said that the Ten Commandments were, quote, too altruistic meaning too unselfish or too selfless. But I don't think I have ever heard the Ten Commandments as being unrighteous. Even to the unbeliever, they have to confess in conjunction with Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And verse 8 says, the presence, excuse me, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The Lord's laws are ever perfect and ever right. But then, when you get into the particulars, the unbeliever betrays that unrighteousness, excuse me, that righteousness by their deeds. The seventh commandment is a case in point. This is the commandment not to commit adultery. But if you want to do this, it means you must be chaste as well. And that is not a popular message for those who have adopted the so-called sexual revolution. Thereby, they betray the righteousness of God's law by their deeds. The second vow that I would mention, vow two, is I will keep your statutes. This almost goes without explanation. He makes this vow before God to keep God's statutes. As as we said, God's laws are perfect and right and righteous. Matthew Henry said this quite poetically, we cannot keep them unless we learn them, but we learn them in vain if we do not keep them. The believer strives to keep the law and makes solemn promises to keep them. Of course, this is only in an evangelical sense as a rule of life, but this is a universal obedience. However, you break them unintentionally every day. 
But if you don't make this your aim, you will not keep them at all. Once I heard uh, a story that Martin Luther prayed the Ten Commandments every day. Praying in the morning how he sinned against God the day before. And then asking the Lord to help him do better uh, today. I commend this practice to you. To pray God's word back to him and especially the Ten Commandments. Many unbelievers say that they are not guilty of breaking this, uh, the Ten Commandments. When you, uh, when you just, uh, excuse me, when you just keep to the second law, the second table of the law, they might say, well, I have never committed murder or had an affair or stolen. But when you expound the law the way Jesus put it, if you have hated your neighbor, In your heart, you have committed adultery. If you have lusted for a woman who is not your wife, you have committed adultery. They stand condemned. And you must tell them that they are guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments and all the righteous rules of God and command them to cling to Jesus by faith and receive the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ. That brings us to the last and final point under this heading. Do not utterly forsake me. Do not utterly forsake me. The Greek Old Testament gets closer to the meaning. It says, do not completely abandon me or do not leave me behind. Or, do not leave me to myself. As Psalm 51 says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Or maybe as in Exodus 33, 19, the Lord says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is an appeal to the grace of God. Do not abandon me to myself. Be gracious to me. Take not your spirit from me who extends his grace. This is an appeal to the Lord for grace. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me to myself. Continue your grace and mercy to me and I will obey your statutes, your righteous rules. Calvin says in his commentary, on Psalm 119, in these words, he affer, excuse me, he avers it to be his intention to observe the law, but conscious of his weakness, he utters a prayer that God would not deprive him of his grace. That God would not deprive him of grace. And again, Calvin says in a prayer, O oh God. Thou seest my frame of mind, and as I am but a man, do not conceal too long from me the tokens of thy favor, or defer from helping me long that is proper for me, lest imagining myself to be forsaken of thee, I thrust aside from the direct pursuit of godliness. Do you you hear what he's saying? Don't forsake me. Don't leave me by myself. Don't 
be estranged from me, for I cannot keep this. I cannot keep your righteous rules without your grace. Without grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I see that you are righteous in all your rules. I see that you will not utterly forsake me. I see your grace exhibited to me. Do not leave me to myself. Don't utterly abandon me without giving me your grace. This now leads to our applications. I would like to make three applications to you as you go. Will you vow to praise the Lord as long as you live? Will you vow to praise the Lord as long as you live? When you look at God through the lens of Christ Jesus granted to you by the Spirit, how can you not love the Lord your God? The triune God. How can you not long to praise the Lord every day of your life? For the Father's love given to us. How can you not praise the Lord for the Son's sacrifice for you? How can you not long to praise the Lord for the Spirit's applicatory work that He has done in and for you? I exhort you to vow to praise the Lord as long as you live. While you were unconverted, you had no freedom to praise. You were slaves subjected to the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you were converted, you did not need to gain your freedom. You already have been freed by union and communion with Christ. But you will desire to give praise morning, noon, and night with every stage of your life. If you don't long to praise the Lord, you will take note of that and pray, Lord, give me the desire to praise you. Give me the desire to praise you morning, noon, and night in every aspect of my life. You will take heed that you don't desire and you will pray to the Lord, give me the desires of my heart that I will desire to praise you with every instant of my being, with every, with every uh, day, with, with every part of my being, you will pray that prayer. My second application is take encouragement from your vows to praise the Lord. When I was going through uh, treatments for brain cancer, when I was sick, This is what kept me going. I constantly recalled to my mind, I have made vows to praise you. To praise you, Lord, as long as I live. I will not betray you now. I know that you have a good reason for this, and I will trust you. I constantly reminded myself of this when I was sick. To keep going. To keep going I urge you to make this same commitment. I thrust, excuse me, I trust that it will get you through hard times as well. 
Make a vow to the Lord to grant you such grace as to praise Him all the days of your life. And you will be encouraged to do these things as well. Further, will you vow to obey? Will you vow to obey the Lord? Remember what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. Stemming from the love of the triune God, will you obey him? When you learn of his righteous rules, will you commit to keeping his statutes and thereby confirming and proving this by your fruits? If you have truly been called, justified, and adopted, and sanctified, you will commend that by your fruits. However, you cannot perform any good works if you don't have the fourth application. Know that you rely on God's grace. As Calvin says in his Institutes, there is no doubt that whatever is praiseworthy in works is God's grace. There is not a drop that we ought by right to ascribe to ourselves. If we truly and earnestly recognize this, not only will all confidence and merit vanish, but the very notion. We do not merit anything except condemnation. Whatever is good in you can only be ascribed to God's grace. Knowing this, you can vow to obey your, God's righteous rules. As Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is only God working in you that makes you will and work for his good pleasure. This is highly mysterious. I, I don't fully understand. But know that if you are willing to obey his rules, that is evidence of the work of grace in your heart. If you vow not to lean on your good works, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, and in his power, he will compel you to do good works. As the hymn writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we vow to praise you every day, every moment of our life, but we come short of that vow. But if you would be with us by your grace, your grace compels us to vow again with every breath of my being, I will praise the Lord. And the other vow, which I will obey your righteous rules. Again, we cannot do this without your grace, for we can only merit 
condemnation. But if you grant us this grace to prove that we we have actually been justified, sanctified, and adopted, with the power of your grace exhibited in Jesus Christ, we will obey you. The work of sanctification is that we will be enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We, we desire to do this. We desire that you would give us this grace that we may obey your righteous rules. So give us this grace. We plead with you for your grace to exhibit these things, to vow, I will praise you as long as I live. The only hope that we have of doing that is by your grace. And I will, uh, uh, vow too, I will obey your righteous rules. We only have hopes of that if you grant us your grace. But we know that it is only by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.